I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Ross Kemp. Over the last 18 years, I've made some 90-odd documentaries predominantly in hostile environments, from Afghanistan to Syria, from El Salvador to the Congo. And it's fair to say that during that time, I found myself in a few interesting situations. I've been shot at, tear gassed, had knives pulled on me and spears thrown at me. But in all those years, what's impressed me the most is the resilience of the human spirit. Our ability, no matter where we're from, to overcome and make it through to the other side. So, in my new series, The Kempcast, I'll be talking to some incredible individuals who all have engaging stories to tell and have themselves overcome some extremely tough moments in their lives. Right now, we're living in unprecedented times and we should be doing all we can together to get through this as safely as possible. I hope that if you subscribe to the Kempcast and hear how my guests overcame their toughest moments, it may help you overcome yours, whether you're going through one right now or you're faced with one in the future. Joining me today is BAFTA-winning explorer, author, and television presenter, Steve Backshaw, MBE. Best known for his TV shows, Deadly 60 and Expedition. I hope you enjoy the show. Steve, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me. How are you, mate? I'm, I'm doing surprisingly well. Yeah? How are you finding lockdown? Do you know what? Lock, lockdown's been a rare opportunity for me. I, I think that I spend so much of my time away and an awful lot of time missing home. And to be forced to be at home, for whatever reason, it, it is, is quite a rare thing. To be forced to be at home when I have uh, two babes in arms that are only a few months old and a youngster who, who's, you know, just two has been an opportunity to be a proper dad for a change. Yeah. So how, how often are you away in a year? How long does Helen say goodbye for? So I, I would say that the average is somewhere between five and eight months, although I, I, I have been away for longer than that before. But it's it, what, what really is, is the, the killer are the trips where you, you are properly away, where you're away and you're in you know, the wildest places you can imagine, where your communication with back home is, is you know, few and far between. Um, those are the ones that never used to bother me when I was in my 20s, but, but now they're starting to get a little bit old. What you mean when you get that sat phone connection that lasts for about half a second? Once oh, you've got through, you've been wandering around. Go on, give us some examples. Some of the places where you've got uh, your sat phone eventually to work, and as soon as you got through, it's got clunk. It's 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 rainforest. Rainforests are the worst because you've got you've got canopy, and so you, you know you might just be able to find a little place where you can see the sky, and that, and like you absolutely hit hit the nail on the head. You know, you get a connection just long enough to say hello. Are you there? Can you hear me? Are you? It's me. It's oh, it's gone, and, and and that's it. And that might be it for the rest of the day, and and that can be really really tough. Um, it, it just it, yeah, particularly now that you know we're in a modern world where people are used to be able to not just able to speak to each other on the phone, but being able to have to have video calls at, at the blink of an eye, and all of a sudden you can be somewhere where that is completely gone, and you're cast back a hundred years to to basically tapping out you know Morse code to try and get a message back home. And also because you build up your expectations that you are going to get through and that you are going to get someone that is different from that small niche team that you're with, particularly if you're in an extreme situation where you find yourself very often. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. And, and that has become much more important uh, since becoming a dad. You know, 
I've only been a dad for two years and I've spent an awful lot of that time in, in places that are hell and gone from anywhere. And, you know, when, when your kids are really young, they change by the minute, they change by the hour. You go away on a six week trip and you come back and they are unrecognizable and you've missed all these little landmarks in their life. You've missed them having their first smile or laugh or crawl. Um, and it's, and that, that stuff that it, massive cliche, but you will never, ever get back. Mm. I was reading some of the things that you've said about, about being in lockdown and how fantastic it's been, particularly because you live on the Thames, you've been doing your swimming, you've noticed, I even I've noticed, I had a pair of foxes in my garden fighting over my golden retriever's toy the other day. Now, and I went out there and normally they would have scuttled and they just looked at me and said, it's our toy, go away. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? I, th I think that an awful lot of people have reconnected with nature through this, this period of time, through lockdown. And I think that particularly at the beginning of lockdown, when we had that one precious hour a day when we were allowed to go out and you know, do some exercise, allowed to go out and go for a walk in the woods, that people started to focus on it more and started to appreciate every single second of it. And all of a sudden, I was getting contact from people going... This is a bird calling in my garden that I've never heard before. What is it? I've just seen this bug in my in my cabbage patch that I've never seen before. And I think there's definitely a point where we have all switched on to nature in a way that, that has been different ever before. But also the lack of us, the fact that, you know, we have been outdoors so much less, that our vehicles have been less less motive, that our, our, our certainly here on the river, we've had less boat traffic made a massive difference so so quickly and nature bounced back in a big way and like you say there's there's wild animals that got a look in their eye like hang on a sec this is my patch what are you doing mm. here uh, and and it was kind of sort of immediate within two weeks of lockdown it, it was very different i was fortunate because i was i was moving around a bit during lockdown there was just no traffic and and it was like they sensed it immediately and said do you know what this is what it should be like yeah, do you know what? We did an amazing story down uh, in, in Dorset and in Studland Bay, where they, they have a lot of issues between boat traffic and the seagrass meadows that grow there in this, this beautiful, beautiful bay and the animals that live there. And over the course of lockdown, there was no boat traffic. So the seagrass meadows came back and all of a sudden they were filled with seahorses and no one's seen seahorses there for years. And all of a sudden they were everywhere and it's kind of like this this instantaneous bounce back effect that nature regenerates and regenerates so quickly in the absence of us do you think we, we are rapidly destroying our planet then you know what it's it's so difficult isn't it because i in so many places have seen the effects over time of human beings in a way that is frustrating and sometimes crushing um but I have also seen the flip side of that and I've seen places that have bounced back. So for example, we did a, an amazing series in Monterey Bay in California. Um, what was that? Probably about 10 years ago now. And seeing this, this place which had been effectively completely dead, had been wiped out by fishing and too much boat traffic. And then it was made into a marine reserve. And within the course of a decade, they had blue whales and humpback whales and sperm whales popping up back in this place that is a abundant with life and it, it does convince me that that nature is robust in certain situations uh, and I think that that's really really important because as a conservationist it would be so easy to be pessimistic and to be negative but having seen give nature a chance and it will bounce back that that's a real reason to get involved in conservation isn't it and it's a real reason to sell to people you know if you create marine reserves off the coast of the UK then we'll have blue whales and sperm whales and humpback whales. No reason why we shouldn't have. If you take some of the, the, the portions of our, you know, massively industrialized and, and over agriculture driven landscape here in the UK and make them wild again, then they will just burst into life in a matter of years. And that's that's important. People need to know that. You've joined the Green Party. Is that right? I have. It was... Do you know that was that was a, a bold bold thing for me i i don't i don't talk about my politics a tremendous amount uh, but i have been uh, I, i'm a bit of a lefty I, i'm kind of someone that believes <laughs> <laughs> you're talking about it now Go on, I, know, I know i really am i really am so i I've, I've kind of um i i totally reacted against my parents politics uh, i have been a labor voter ever since i've been allowed but then in the last few years i've, I've become somewhat disaffected with that and i've become more aware that you know I think the Green Party has an ethos about it and a way of working that may be idealistic and, and maybe a lot of their ideas may not work. And yes, they are struggling to get any more than one single MP, but they're good people who have a positive idea for how they want to make the planet better. And I uh, am quite 
proud to be a part of that. I think that, you know, there, there is no way that we are going to take control of this country, but by providing some of our ideas and some of our maxims for a better future, then, then maybe we can provide influence. And I think that, you know, I would like people to know that voting for someone in, in the Green Party as your local politician, getting a chance of having one more MP, two more MPs, could make a really big difference to, to how we run this country positively. Let's go back to the beginning and let's go back to, to Steve um, leaving uni. Um, first of all, though, theatre studies? Oh, God, don't. <laughs> Come on. Do not get me started. Get me on the theatre studies. Come on. Do you know what? It, it, it's quite a long story. How, how much time have you got? As long as you want, mate. Uh, okay, so I think if I, if I look back at my childhood... Wow, this is this is something I really genuinely haven't talked about before. But I um I think I had a very very happy family life, and a miserable school life, and I was very much searching to try and find who I was and what my what my you know future was going to be. I I went to a very average that that's putting it politely comprehensive school where the teaching was appalling, and I just lost all my love for learning. Sounds like my life so far. I love, does it, does I love my really? family. Went to an average comprehensive. God bless it. It's a lot better now in Essex. Never fitted in at school and was always looking for something else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's just exactly the same. And I, um, I was, I was a, a bright kid, naturally quite bright. So I could kind of, you know, cruise through my classes without having to do any work. Uh, I pretty much failed my GCSEs, but then I got onto my A-levels and I met the teacher that the teacher that everyone you know kind of always talks about as the one person who who switched all my my buttons got me back interested in learning got me fascinated by ideas and by philosophy and by politics and it just so happened that he taught theater and because of rob brown this one person who has been you know such a critical presence in my life that's what I went to university and did. And the second I got to university, I looked around and went, I don't really like theatre very much. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I think it was, it was so important in my life because it was the time when I, I switched back to, you know, not wanting to be one of the cool kids and, and just basically arse about all the time, but actually try and do and achieve something. And, and then, you know, I went back to university and I studied biology and got back into, I guess, the more natural me but if it hadn't been for that one teacher just inspiring me and, and kind of setting me up on the right path then god knows where i'd be now you are an incredibly positive individual I, do you you know the people you said took the mickey they said best ever back <laughs> you, you were always the best ever but do you not think that that is intrinsic to being able to do what you you do you know whether it's climbing whether it's climbing a waterfall that's frozen that no one else has done or, or going into a cave that, it, that is unexplored. It, it's, it's certainly my defining characteristic. And I think that anyone who knew me for, you know, a short period of time might think that it was uh, to an extent put on uh, or, or created because I, I do have a tendency to, look at every single idea, every single project, every single moment of the day and think, like you say, this is the best ever. And I think that that enthusiasm has driven my friends and family mad for years, but it, it is, it is my, my defining characteristic and always has been. Um, I, I think that it, it has, it's driven an, a huge amount of what I've done in my life has has been that incessant kind of yeah let's let's do it Let, let's some, someone says oh do you know what? I've always wanted to to walk the Pennine way and my response will be well, well let's go this weekend and and you know it, it's it's just it that is I think the part of my character that's just kept on pushing and pushing and pushing and I I, I think I'm very very lucky in that I know how to reset my own positivity if I find myself kind of lagging or feeling low i know that what i need to do is to get outside and do some exercise and you know 
go out looking for animals. And the second I do that, I'm back on cloud nine again. And I'm, I'm very, very lucky to have that. And I think the positivity too. I, we're talking to a guy called Ross Edgley, you know, he swam around the channel oh, amongst many what other a things. Hero. What a hero. But, he, but again, Steve, he talks about that positivity about you can draw that up inside you. And it's clinically proven that people who have positive energy do better at most things, whether it's making money or whether it's lifting weights or martial arts. Again, you know, you have faced some extreme, extreme situations where you can't get on the phone and go, come and get me. Um, do you think that positive positivity again seeing you through those dark moments i think how can i put this I, I think ross is an awful lot better at elucidating this than i am he's probably he's probably sat down and thought about it an awful lot more than i have and i i, I probably should do too because then i could write a, a best-selling book like his which <laughs> <laughs> well you have you have you're right you've written a brilliant book so i i, I think i think though i mean you, you, what you're kind of getting at is is what everyone's searching for is, isn't it really? It's, it's finding a way of being able to, to format and, and bottle that positivity and find a way of being able, you know, to, to be able to use it as a resource because it gets you out of so many scrapes that, that being up and being positive, you, you know, I'm, I'm sure that many of the, the encounters that you've had with people being able to have a positive response to them rather than an aggressive response or a, uh, a, a negative response is everything. It's, and, and it's exactly the same working with animals. It's exactly the same working with a team on expedition. And yeah, I probably should spend more time thinking about, how it works and trying trying to break it down to its to its nuts and bolts because i i think it is incredibly important and i think that i think that the, the animals can pick up on that just as much as human beings yeah yeah I, I mean a lot of the the cliches about working with animals are completely true the number one of which is that animals can smell fear i mean it's not always smelling but they can definitely sense fear in a human being and in other animals as well. And whenever you're working with particularly predators, the number one rule is you don't run. You don't run, you don't show fear, you show confidence. You, sh you, you, if you're, for example, diving with sharks or diving with crocodiles, you do everything you can to bring down your heart rate, to bring down your breathing. Because the second you start to get stressed, your heart rate goes up, up. You're, sending little, yeah, you're sending little vibrations out into the water that animals can sense. And you're, you're exuding pheromones that animals can pick up on and they react negatively to them. And that's, that's everything from wasps in your back garden to, to dogs, to horses. Any, anybody that works with animals knows this. You step up a limit when you're you know, working with tigers and great white sharks, but it, but it is exactly the same. You know, your attitude and the way that you deal with them is essential to the outcome you're going to get. Yeah. And, and just those tips again, next time I find myself swimming with, you know, a Nile crocodile is just yeah. to kind of keep my heart rate down. It is to, <laughs> I, I know, I know, I know it's, I know it's absolutely oh. crazy, but so, so the, the, the step up with that is, is that crocodiles have um, around their, what would be lips if, if they had lips, but around the scales that lie in their jaws, they have packed nerve endings, which uh, end up in this little bump just around the, the, the jaws. And those are absolutely triggered at vibration. So a bird falls into the water and is struggling. They sense it, they go for it. Something comes down to the water's edge and drinks. It creates a little ripple, they target it. So I, I have dived alongside four and a half meter long Nile crocodiles. And you've just, Mate. every single second you're saying, just keep calm, <laughs> keep calm, keep your breathing down, keep your heart rate down. And that, that's the only thing that is absolutely critical. You, you wearing a tank or were you snorkeling? How are you doing? So we've done both, but uh, the, the definitely the most frightening was diving. So the um, the Okavango Delta in Botswana, somewhere I'm sure you've you've been yourself. I've never been to Botswana. Oh, you're not. That's an amazing country. I hear it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, but at the right time of year, if you go at the right time of year, then the Okavango itself is running very clear and very cold. And any crocs that are in the water, they're, they're a bit sluggish. They're, they're not their normal sort of hypercharged self. And so you can dive alongside them. And um, they're mostly feeding on fish. So it, as long as you take on that, that really confident uh, posture in the water and you don't 
you get down from the surface as fast as you possibly can down to the bottom. So you're not making those ripples. And also creating a, a, a silhouette that they might target on the surface of the water. Um, and yeah, it can be done. I, I mean, it, it, it is, it's one of the riskiest uh, encounters with an animal that I've, I've ever done. Um, but you know, we we all got out with our fingers and toes intact. Oh, mate, but you, you have been bitten. You've been bit by a caiman, weren't you? I, I have. That though was completely my own fault. So we were uh, we were working in. Of course Argentina. it was, Steve. Of course. I know. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I kind of I, I ignored all my own rules. Uh, we were we were on horseback. So we were on horseback. We were looking for a for a massive snake called called an anaconda that lives in the water we, we were looking for, for these uh, massive snakes and my uh one of the guys i was with i think it was my director said see 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 i just saw some movement down at your horse's hooves i'm pretty sure it was an anaconda so i jumped down and i started feeling around in the, <laughs> in the mud with my feet for what i hoped would be a, a bloody great big snake and uh, instead i was walking all over the face of a of a crocodile a caiman a, a caiman like you say and they're big i mean the caiman some of them are thin i've seen them in the amazon some of them have got long fishy snouts but the other ones they're crocs they're crocs yeah it was it was plenty big enough was it, and it, it yeah it, it just it swept around and took a chunk out of my leg uh, and we got it all on two different cameras Amazing. and i mean I, I i could kind of remember going oh my goodness i've just been bitten i've just been bitten by a crocodile did you get that there's no point in going through the pain unless there's some sort of game right no no exactly exactly right yeah so i mean i, I i've been uh, I've, I've been working with animals a long long time now and that's probably the only bad bite i've had in, in in all that time and you know i mean we were we were back in searching for snakes the very next day so it it wasn't it wasn't that bad you get dressed out on the ground obviously do, do you have med do you have a medical person with you that can look after that kind of stuff we we took ourselves to a local village and they had they had a medical center um but they had a a power cut and there was no there was no power so they uh, so they stitched me up underneath a tree in the uh, in the front in the front garden yeah, mate, that's the only way to do it. Isn't it? <laughs> I, I just like, I think, I, you know, I, I think, I think of myself as relatively well traveled and you know what, I'm a complete amateur uh, in comparison to you. Let's go back to when you first started traveling, you went to Indonesia and you can speak Indonesian though. There's many yeah. different dialogues in that archipelago, isn't there? Um, tell me about East Timor. I can only say that because I went there a long time ago and I was there for the, for the violence. It was when Ramos Horta was, was the prime minister oh yes he yeah, got yeah. shot didn't he eventually he got shot just after i left what was it like what was east timor like i went there when i was uh when would it have been would it have been about 96 i guess it's wild now it was even wilder then yeah it it, it was wild then and i you know i was i was young and dumb and kind of thought well i've got my i've got my journalist past I'll, I'll be all right and uh i i went in there on my own and um it was it was awful it was it was totally lawless the indonesian military were at the time there uh, and you know for very good reason hated by the 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 east timorese and i i was unfortunate enough to to find myself uh, swept up in a demonstration on the streets which got put down by the indonesian military first with with water cannons uh, and then with with bullets and i uh, can remember just crouching down behind the bar in the hotel while the front of the hotel was shot out that yeah that's on the harbor isn't it the one on the harbor yeah is it on the harbor is it on the harbor i i can't i have to say i can't exactly remember no I, I like i like indonesia and i've got a lot of reasons for liking it but they did they did shoot up east timor before they left it that's for sure they, they did some appalling things you know it, I, I like like you i have a lot of history with with indonesia but their uh, their presence in east timor and in uh, west papua is is shameful and and uh, you know it, it we could talk about that for a very long time i mean the mountaineering is exceptional the amount of pigs that you've climbed that many and and also climbing i mean i can't climb a mountain to save my life but the fact is, if I did, I'd be following in the footsteps of somebody else. What you've specialised in, particularly in recent times, that you may have always done, is going where no one else has gone before in, in a world that is continuously being exposed to human footprints. Um, 
when you plan to climb a mountain that's never been climbed before, how do you go about it? That's, that is a great question. And it's, it varies depending on the terrain. So uh, sometimes we've been lucky enough to have access to a helicopter or to a drone nowadays. And being able to fly parts of the route is, it can be really, really useful. You can find out where the stumbling blocks are. You can get a sense of, uh, of where a route might break, so to speak, uh, and which parts of it may be impossible. Um, other times we have quite literally sat for days with binoculars just underneath studying a rock face looking at uh, the the way the rock forms at the geology and trying to figure out what might make uh, a useful route sometimes uh, the rock will give away part of its features from its color or from uh, from shading that shows that you might have big overhangs big ceiling systems um, but more than anything it's been down to just surrounding myself with really really good people you know when I've been doing first ascents I've very rarely been the lead climber on a couple of them I have but you know mostly I've been working with someone who is just way way beyond my ability and knowledge and experience of being able to use everything that they've learned everything that they know um, is is kind of the crux of it really I, I have the um, the great privilege of climbing with a guy called John Aaron who is I guess he's the an antithesis of me really he's he is someone who's whose climbing ability is utterly spectacular he could he could climb a vertical brick rock wall as if you or i were going up a ladder but the humility of the man is such that you you won't find him in any climbing magazines you know he could be on the front cover of every single climbing magazine around the world but he just just could not be less interested and his ability to look at a rock face that no one's ever been on before and say right well we'll go 15 meters up dead straight then we'll pitch to the left then we'll head up there and to climb things that no other human being would put themselves on including people like you know Alex Honnold Leo Holding um is has been my ticket to the top of the biggest climbs I've done how important is the team Steve teams teams everything isn't it I think that um you know we can we can lose touch quite a lot in modern life with with real team situations, the kind of things that you will have seen with with people in the military and people in in conflict zones it, where your team is your lifeline as much as a diver's cylinder is their lifeline where you put your life into somebody else's hands every single second of the day and expect them to do the same with you. And I am very lucky that I've got to work with some people for a long time, people that you, you just, you instinctively know have always got your back. And when you meet someone like that, you don't let them go. You know, you make sure that everything you plan, theirs is the first name on the team sheet. Um, and those are the people that, you know, when I think team now, I, I think of them. Um, talk to me about that time in the, in the kayak, mate how did that happen so yeah we we were um we were doing a a a project a, a series of 10 expeditions each of which was a first each of which had some some elements of it that hadn't been done before and one of them was to descend a whitewater river in bhutan in the himalayas uh, which was totally unpaddled to a certain extent much like with the um, with the rock faces we were talking about before, to a certain extent, we flew some portions of it with the drone. There were a couple of sections where we got uh, up ahead and we looked down onto the river with binoculars, but you can only tell so much. Also, just 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 as a layman, you don't know what those drops are, or you can maybe estimate the drop, but you can't estimate what's underwater. A drone can't see through water. No, no, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, we used those those things plus a little bit of the uh, of the kind of what we knew of the landscape and how much the river had to fall to to make a, I, I guess to 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 get some idea of whether it would be possible at all but then the idea was that as we descended you get out at every significant rapid and you would you do a recce you check you, you know you'd have a good look around and you'd look for obvious obstacles in the water so for example you know if you get a big rapid and there is a tree down through the middle of it, that's, that's really dangerous. You know, the chances are you, you can get through the rapid, but you're going to get stuck at some point and getting stuck in the middle of a river at a big rapid is, is not good. So you would try and carry around it. Um, the one that was a problem was we got to the end of the day and, you know, I'm sure that you've 
been through this yourself as well. There, there are so many times when bad things happen at the end of the day, when everyone's, everyone's tired, everyone's exhausted, everyone just wants to get to somewhere and set up the camp and, and get some food inside them. And we got to a, a rapid that was obviously serious, um, but we couldn't see down to the bottom of it and we couldn't recce it. And I think if we'd hit that rapid at 11 in the morning, everyone would just have gone, do you know what? This, this is too dangerous. Let's just carry the boats up and out and around it. And, you know, it, it'll be fine. But we had that end of day kind of, oh, let's just get this done. And uh, we talked ourselves into running it blind. Uh, which was just, it was a, it was a dumb call. It was a really dumb call. And uh, my paddle partner Sal Montgomery, who is just the most nails human being you will ever ever <laughs> see. I mean, she she is she is shredded in a way that no human being should ever be. And she's an extraordinary paddler. She, but she went down first, uh, managed to pick a line, and then I I followed, and I didn't do as well as she did. And I um, went down this this small waterfall where the entire river volume was being channeled into one, um, one short section. And I got caught and I got sucked under my boat got, got sucked under first. And then normally in that situation, after, you know, a a minute or so of getting thrashed about, you come out of the boat and the the rapid flashes, flushes you out. And I came out of the boat and I just got dragged straight to the bottom. And yeah, it, it was, the, the the big difference was time. So I, I have had close calls before, but they've all been they've all been quick. They've all been things that you only realise afterwards when you're sat back in the pub with your mates. Oh, actually, that was a bit spicy. But this this time, like you said, I was in it for five minutes, and five minutes is enough time for you to figure out what's happening, for you to process it, and for you to realise this is this is all bad. So just to be clear, you are upside down in a boat with basically a tap the size of a football pitch dropping on you and you can't get out of it. It's like, it's like when you see a ball being hit, it's just being pushed under the water and it can't get, it's trying to get up, but it just can't get up. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's exactly it. You, you have a certain amount of flotation from your, uh, from your, your PFD, from your, um, your life jacket. Um, and that was bringing me back up to the surface every... Uh, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 seconds, but the water is glacial meltwater. It's, it's absolutely freezing and you're being, you're being washing machined, churned up and down. So you've got no air in your lungs. You come up, you grab a, grab a breath, you're back under. Um, and the scary thing is, I, I think that, you know, when you're, when you're a physical person, you get used to relying on your own strength and ability to get yourself out of situations. And after probably... I would guess three or four minutes, I had no strength. You know, I could not get myself back up to the surface. I very quickly realized that I was done. I was, I was gone and I wasn't getting out of it myself. So did you come to terms at that moment, Steve, with the end of, of your life? Yeah, I did. Um, I, I think I've, I've had to think about this quite a lot afterwards. And I think that moments like that, seem to go on forever and you know the the expression of your life flashing before your eyes i I believe that's a real thing i believe that's something that uh you know both retrospectively a moment takes on more importance than it had so you stretch it in your mind but also i think that probably your brain is a remarkable tool and it's probably running back through your life to try and find some kind of precedent something that it can anchor onto that might be your solution that might be your way out of that problem which is why you know it it does you you literally find yourself going back to your childhood and going back to you know the first time you ever got into a kayak but more than anything i had time to think of my little boy and my wife and think i'm not going to get him to see him grow up and i can i can remember it so with such clarity um, and it was it was horrific, just that absolute knowledge that I was going to drown and I was going to die there. And uh, like I said, I could not affect that situation. There was nothing I could do about it. And if it wasn't for the fact that Sal managed to somehow, God knows how, get back up against the rapids, uh, throw me in a line, and she had one throw. There is, you know, she had no no margin for error. She couldn't have brought the bag back in. Re, uh, restacked it and thrown it again I would have been I would have been drowned by then um, 
and she hit me with the, with the bag first time, dragged me out, dragged me down through the rapids. And it was, it was, you know, I've got a good kicking, but I survived and I owe Sal my life. Absolutely. 100%. And it's, uh, it, that's a pretty, that's a pretty powerful thing. You know, I, I, um, I, I don't waste any opportunity to get on the phone and to tell her that everything, you know, my, my twins, my future is, is all thanks to her. Well, it's not all thanks to her. I think Helen probably had a little bit. <laughs> but no, what you're saying is you wouldn't have been there. And, and those moments often hit you hardest. Though you had time during that moment, what was it like that night once you sat down and sort of started debriefing yourself through everything and you realised how close you'd come to not being there? Oh, it, was, it was awful. It was awful. I mean, I, I, you know, we've talked a fair bit about the fact that I am naturally a very enthusiastic, very positive person. I, I took myself back to my tent on my own. I downed the best part of a bottle of scotch. Um, I just sat there and was kind of like, what am I doing? You know, what, why am I who has so much to be grateful for putting my life at risk over and over again? You know, I'm, I'm in my forties. I have a wife and a kid. Why, why do I still think that I've got anything to prove? Why am I still putting myself into situations where I could die? What for? What's, what's the point of it all? And it, you know, I, I did, I did spiral quite a lot after that. And I, I think that I probably, you know, looking back on it now, I probably should have got some, some counseling, but I, I have um, some very good friends. who I sat down and had some quite long conversations with who, who really kind of helped me through it. And also, you know, um, I was bloody minded enough to get back in the kayak. The That's what I was going to ask you. How difficult was it to get back in the boat the next day? It was, it was, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. But I, I, I knew that um, there was, it was, you couldn't get a bus or a taxi back down. So I suppose, there was way. <laughs> but, but ultimately, you know, that feeling that I've been hit once by sharks and I had to go back in the water the next day and it was my silly fault. And it's another story, but, getting back in the water the next day and it's nothing compared to what you've been through. I, I wet myself getting back in the water. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, I was the same. I did, didn't want to do it. Uh, would have given anything to have just gone, uh, come on that, come on guys, that's enough. Let's, let's just call it there. But, but you've got a big team of people who've all traveled out to the Himalayas to do this expedition. It's the one chance any of them's going to have. And in the back of, back of my mind I also knew that if I didn't get back in the boat that next morning then I never would have again um you know I mean that that's that is not an exaggeration I would I would never have have paddled a kayak again and and it's been a, you know it's been a big part of my life I've been I, I learned when I was in the scouts at about 11 or 12 years old and there's very rarely a day goes by that I don't get back in a boat but I would have I would have lost that part of my life completely if I hadn't faced it um but to a certain extent as well i i kind of i i cheated myself out of the the proper um proper reckoning that i probably should have had and you know maybe i'm almost talking about this as if it's a good thing but maybe it's not maybe maybe a much more kind of mature thing to have done would have been to have said actually no do you know what now that is enough and you don't have anything to prove anymore so just knock it on the head. You've said prove twice, and I don't think you have anything to prove. I think you, it's, it's in your nature, isn't it? It's in your nature to want to push the envelope. It's in your nature to want to see more of the world. I think it's also in your nature to do, do what is the right thing, which is to try and inform as many of us as to, to what we're doing to the planet and, and also how beautiful uh, uh, this, this beautiful planet is. Sorry, how beautiful this beautiful planet is. I'm getting all very it's a, beautiful. It's a beautiful planet. It's, it, I mean, there's no I've doubt to, it's beautiful. I've had to say it three times though, do I? <laughs> <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Uh, but but go, going on, but look, 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 think about Steve Irwin. And, and he only came to me, and I was reading, reading through the notes and, and, and looking forward to talking to you. Look, there's a real example of a man that was, as you have become a sort of global phenomenon, you know, you're watched all around the world. You're absolutely adored by kids, particularly, but also by adults. Um, as you say, you have nothing to prove. He carried on and sadly he, he died. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that um, there's, there's no doubt that I am reaching a time in my life when I'm, I'm asking myself a lot of questions and a lot of the kind of questions that, that, you're kind of asking me right now, really. I think what what is what do I want to be my epitaph? What do I want to be my maxim? Is is it is it really someone who pushed the envelope over and over again, or or is it someone who actually you know helped someone somewhere to find a greater appreciation of the natural world, or is it someone who you know brought to light certain areas of conservation in in the the mainstream media? I think actually a, a more fitting and more mature legacy would be the would be the second part of that, wouldn't it? You know, I, I think that the the first part is more that's more the dream of a of a of a twenty year old, and it's a much more selfish, much more self focused kind of goal. And now I'm I'm a dad. I'm very very aware of of what a privilege that is and how special that is. Um, the responsibility of looking. Looking after yourself is one thing. The responsibility of looking after another human being is a completely different ballgame. It is. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of, you, I couldn't say it better myself. That, that is absolutely the crux of it. Um, and, you know, perhaps, perhaps now it's time to put away childish things and start thinking about something more, more constructive to sort of to, to work to now to, to, being, to being the big picture for the future. Mm. I mean, let's take a few things off, though. Uh, you know, the Marathon de Sable. I mean, that's, what is it, 350? It's, it's a long way. It's, it's a long 300, way. Is it 358? <laughs> I've read it down. It's, it's, I'm going in the desert. You're running. Oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Do a marathon. Don't do 243 Ks, mate. I mean, yeah, look, yeah. I've also, when you were training with... Um, you went out to Negev Desert. I wandered around there once at night with um, Israeli special forces looking for drug runners. And I fell over a couple of times. I was wearing gloves. And literally, it's the, the rocks there are razor sharp. Sliced through the glove. Lucky didn't, I mean, my, work, the glove worked. But you were the, one of the quickest. You got your red berry with the Israeli special forces. What's that about? Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I, I was bored that weekend. <laughs> I could have done the Pennine way, but I thought I'll go do the Negev instead. <laughs> I, I, I find that, um, I, I mean, I, I used to, I used to um, be massively motivated by, by finding how far I could go, by finding out what, what my limits were and by, by trying to, to beat them and better them. Um, and, and, and now, do you know, I think I'm, I'm switched on by different things. I, I think that I, I can get the greatest joy from getting up and, and seeing the sunrise and particularly here, you know, having the, the, the kind of smoke sitting over the water and the, the swans cruising through it. And it's the Thames, you know, 
and I, I get a massive jolt of positivity and excitement from that, that maybe 15, 20 years ago, I would have, I would have got from pushing that extra last mile on a massive ultra marathon. But also, Steve, if you hadn't been to the places that you've been to, if you hadn't seen the sunrise out of a cave where human beings were living thousands of years ago, if you hadn't nearly drowned, if you hadn't, I will get on to, you know, gone out and caught anacondas or been bitten by a caiman. And I'm only scratching the surface here. If you hadn't done all those things, waking up and seeing those swans gently moving through the mist on an early Thames morning wouldn't be the same, would they? I don't know. I, I don't know. Honestly, I, I think that I, I have been, I've been asking myself a lot of questions over the last couple of years. And I, I think that probably lockdown would have been if it wasn't for the fact that i had three kids under two years of age would have been a time to sit down and think right okay so something's got to change something's got to develop i've got to move in a different way now that is for you know not just the next the next couple of years but the next 20 years 30 years of my career what's that going to be how how am i going to change and how am i going to adjust to what is you know definitely going to be a very different future and i i think that i would probably have sat down and done that and have a much more sensible answer for you if it wasn't for the fact that i've been mostly changing nappies and piece, isn't much. it good fun <laughs> and also i have to say as as a father of twins as well you know uh, someone just told me if, uh, he's not that close to me just said oh great news uh, bob's just had triplets i went not great it's fantastic news mate but if you think one's hard two's twice as hard Three's three times as hard, and then beyond that, you know, forget it. I, I, mean, I do not envy your 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 pal triplets. But, but, but also, do you know what? How have you been with the sleeping? Um, I, I think that I I have been awful with it. Has Helen been... slept to one? <laughs> Hel Helen Helen is a machine. Well, that, that's for sure. We do know that a double gold and probably the fittest woman in a sport for five years six years seven years continuously she yeah. she is a phenomenon in herself isn't she she is but i i would never have i mean i wouldn't have known for certain though that she would take to motherhood quite how she has and that she would be able to you know go through a night where she is up like last night she didn't sleep at all there was one twin at least awake every single minute of the night she breastfed them all the way through the night and then at seven o'clock this morning she put her boat on the river and went out and did 18 kilometers in the rowboat are you kidding that is hard and and that is a kind of level of of toughness and commitment that i cannot begin to fathom i, I must have had four hours sleep last night and there is nothing could have made me get up this morning and go and you know go out and do a session on the river it's a recognised form of torture, not having just having children, but also sleep depth is a recognised. I mean, and there again, that's when, you, as you know, as you said, when you when you got to that point in the, in the river, you know, being that tired, being either sleep depth or being exhausted, that's when things go wrong. That's when mistakes happen. These podcasts have one thing that we ask everybody. We have barely bounced off the meniscus of the pond in terms of some of the toughest situations that you've been through which have been exceptional and, you, and you've overcome them all um but if you were to pick one uh steve uh what do you think has been the toughest moment of your life so far and how did you overcome it i i think that it it, it it's the one that we talked about but because pure and simple i didn't overcome it sal did i i think i'll I'll move on and, and give you another one, if that's okay. Um, so uh, this, was, this was another expedition that I was doing in, um, in Venezuela. We were attempting to make the first uh, summit of a tapui, a flat sandstone-sided uh, massif, which was kind of like a, a fortress. Uh, the whole mountain had never been climbed before, and it was... 600 meters of, of vertical sandstone it was really really serious climbing um and we we just bit off more than we could chew we we got i would guess 150 meters up the side of this thing and chunks were falling off it and it was it, it kind of looked like someone had just thrown castral gtx all over the side of the rock face it was slick and black and nasty um and we had a storm come out of nowhere we're, we're on the equator and it was like being in the North Sea 
our um, our kit was just being tossed around all over the place. We had rain lashing down onto the rock face, very, very high winds. Um, and so myself and my, my climbing partner uh, decided that we were just going to, we were going to get down to our, our midpoint camp as fast as we could. And our, our midpoint camp was portal ledges. We, we were actually on like tea trays kind of, you know, stuck so into anchored, the in, anchored into the wall. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And as I, uh, as I started descending, my boots hit a piece of rock that was the size of a fridge freezer and it just wobbled once and then fell and um aldo my uh my expedition partner was directly below me and i can remember again it's one of those things where your life flashes before your eyes i can remember the millisecond of just that tiny creak as the rock moved in towards the rock face and i could tell that it was going to go and the processing of aldo's below me this is definitely going to kill him um i will have done this this will be my fault i am going to have to go back to his family and tell them what i've done and i'm going to have this hanging over me for the whole of the rest of my life my clumsiness my heavy footedness my rushing when i should be checking myself and telling myself to slow down has killed my friend and it was a horrific millisecond now as it happened the rock slid off and it fell aldo uh, called rock slammed himself in against the rock face um remarkably my cameraman had hung his camera up on the rock face and it caught it's got this amazing shot of aldo just pressing his face against the rock and you can see stuff falling down behind him um and it missed him and he survived but the just the utter horror of somebody else's life being at risk because of me was so much worse than any near-death experience I've had to myself. It, it's the, the the feeling of just uh, absolute. I mean, I, I'm feeling physically sick telling this to you now. I can I can just recall how utterly uh, sickened I was by by what nearly happened. Um, and again, it's just one of those things where we just we just found out. I mean, typical typical expedition team we all sat around that evening and we just made a joke out of it and we just laughed about it non-stop for hours and hours afterwards but it was not funny there was nothing funny about it um and that is one of the the few expeditions that we have actually called and all just sat around and go, gone no if we carry on with this someone is definitely going to die it's only an expedition it's not worth it and called it and turned back and i am so so glad that we did Thank you for that, Steve. I do. So you naturally trim, you trauma risk management, and that's what we do with the team that I, you know, that I work with. You know, particularly whether it's an interview with someone who's been, you know, been traumatized because the, the family members have been tortured or killed, or or whether it's actually a road traffic collision, whatever it may be. You sit and you talk and you listen to everybody's story, and and from that, you know, the massive guilt that you may have been feeling is put into perspective that you didn't actually make that piece of rock fall away. It was a soft piece of sandstone that was going to fall away at some point. Right. Is that how you worked it out? I mean, I still feel now like it was totally my fault. <laughs> and does Aldo, uh, does, does, was it, does, does your partner feel that way? Was it Aldo? Did you say? Do you know, we, yeah, we haven't, we haven't talked about it for quite a while. Actually, he'd be a really good person for you to have on this. Actually, he'd probably, probably tell you some stories about me. <laughs> actually no no don't don't have him on whatever you do <laughs> I, I i think um yeah i mean you know he he has he has a military background and i i think he would be the first to say that uh, actually there's there's not enough of exactly what you're talking about there is far 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 too much of looking back at situations and making light of them and making a joke of them and trying to get around it like that rather than actually doing the proper processing that we that we really all should do um Tell me about the polar bear. Uh, which, which one? The one, the one with the scar across his nose that's called Robert. Ah. No, <laughs> I don't know he's called Robert. But, so you, but it was close. Look, I, I went out to Alaska a long, long time ago before I started doing what I do properly now. And there was a grizzly around me and he left his paw print. And then it, um, 
the wolves turned. I mean, I was really naive and didn't know anything about really where I was. Um, but the bear was big. And, and I remember them giving the advice was, if you're confronted by the bear, do not run. A bear can outrun the fastest man in the country. Unless the bear's hungry, you'll be fine. So what do I say? Have you been to McDonald's today? I mean, what you have a conversation. So tell me, polar bears are considerably bigger than grizzlies and grizzlies are big, right? How big's a, how big's a polar bear? So, so the, the, the biggest, the very biggest polar bears and the very biggest grizzly bears are around about the same. And you could, you could get males that could be standing 12 feet tall and weighing three quarters of a ton. It's the, the biggest land carnivore on the planet. And they move quick. And they, and they move quick. They move very quick. Quicker than humans, basically. Oh, quicker than Usain Bolt for, for absolute, uh, definitely true. The, so the way that I've had it explained to me is that in the Northern Hemisphere, you've got three species of bear. You've got the black bear, the brown bear, and the, and the polar bear. Um, the black bear, almost all of its diet is, uh, is vegetation, mostly berries and roots and, and things like that. And they are very, very rarely of any danger to human beings. Uh, the grizzly bear, most of its diet is vegetation, but they eat a lot of salmon. They occasionally kill uh, deer and another uh, mammal prey. And they can be, they can be quite dangerous. The polar bear has a 100% warm-blooded mammal prey. They feed on seals, they feed on sometimes whales, and they will, in almost every single situation, uh, at least assess a human being to find out if it could be potential food. So they had to be taken very, very seriously. And whenever you're in potential polar bear territory, you have to be very, very prepared for them. And you have to act at every second as if there is a bear around. You carry bear flares, you carry bear spray, which is a really potent pepper spray. And you carry a, a rifle. Well, I wasn't carrying a rifle because, you know, I've, I've got a, I've got an ex-Royal Marine sniper on my, you know, uh, on my, on my six. So he was the guy with the rifle. But um, I, I think that, I mean, the, the encounter that we have with a polar bear is one of the only things that I have had a, a negative reaction from, from the public in, in my whole career. And uh, I, I can kind of understand that because, you know, this bear turned up on, a, on an Arctic beach. We were on foot. We had no way of getting out of there. Um, and it came at us with intent, with every single uh, classic sign of intent that, that you can have, including the, the critical one, which is in all of the guidebooks, which is you scare it away and it comes back. And in that situation, it is then classified as a predatory encounter. Um, and we scared it away using our bear flares and using sound and using noise. And it turned and it came back. And so, you know, we stepped things up. We were, we were making loads of noise. We fired a, a couple of bullets into the ground in front of it and did everything we could to, to get rid of it. And, and we managed to succeed in doing that. And the response on social media was very much of the element of, well, what are you doing? You, you went into its home and you, and you scared it and you frightened it. That's completely unacceptable. Um, and I, although I understand and I appreciate that people care for that animal's well-being that's great but it bears absolutely no relation to the reality of the situation that we were in you have to do whatever you can to get rid of that bear or it's going to be shot and if it's not going to be shot by you then it will be shot by the next human being party it encounters so it is your responsibility to ensure that you frighten that bear away and you make sure that it doesn't come back otherwise it is going to be killed and people didn't really engage with that. And I, I, I can understand that. We live, we live in such a safe environment where our relationship to wild animals is, is you know, such a, an easy and placid one. We don't have any potentially dangerous wild animals here in this country. And so I think we've lost our understanding of the fact that very, very occasionally, and this like happened once in 20 years of working with them, you, you've got to play the bad guy. I mean, there's a question about Helen. I mean, Helen, it, it's hard enough to be two well-known people, but two people have to train to that level and are also often apart because I'm sure her training regime would have taken her away. Uh, did that work? Did it, did it complement each other? Or, or was it often, I'm back. Oh, no, darling, I'm going. I'm off to a mountain somewhere to do altitude training for two months because the Olympics are coming. There's been, yeah, there's, there's definitely been quite a lot of that. And I, I think that, um, you know, there are, there are elements of our life that are, 
that are just really, really difficult and really, really hard. You know, Helen, Helen is a champion. She is a champion with a capital C. She is extraordinarily dri driven um, physically. I mean, a, a lot of, even if people know that she's an Olympian, I don't think people would realize to quite what degree she excels. You know, following following the London 2012 Olympics, there was a an Olympians gold medal edition of superstars, and she didn't just beat all the women gold medal winning women. She built beat all the men. She beat Mo Farah. She beat the Brownlee brothers. The only the only person she didn't beat was Anthony Joshua. You know, this this woman is she's insane, and I think that you know there are always going to be challenges. There are always going to be difficulties. But the opportunity to, to spend my life with someone who is so accomplished, who I admire so much, respect so much, the thought of all of the expeditions we can do together, the thought, the thought of the life that we can give to our youngsters is so exciting that it makes all of the other stuff, which, you know, it is, is a challenge, um, it, it kind of makes it almost irrelevant because the highs are so high you can write off a lot of the lows, you know? And is that, is that the thing that you consider or, or is that that best ever man still inside doesn't even consider those bad moments? One thing I noticed, I mean, do you ever get the black dog? Does he ever arrive? I, I think very rarely. I, I think I'm, I'm very lucky in, uh, I, I can't think of any way of saying this without it sounding impossibly glib and fatuous, but I am, I'm surrounded by a lot of people that have been through so much worse than I, than I ever have. And every, every time I've tasted even a, a, a glimmer of negativity, something really, really awful has happened to someone I love. And it just makes you check yourself and think, you know, come on, you've got everything. And, and then, Added to that, like I said, I'm I'm also I've, I'm very aware of what I need to make me feel good, and I know that I can always get a jolt out of training. I can always get a jolt out of standing on top of a mountain top. I can always get a jolt out of going out and and seeing a wild animal. And as long as I can make sure that I have little self interventions when you know you, you you're feeling low, you're feeling down, you force yourself to go out and do one of those things that's going to reset a lot of those balances. Um, I think that it, it makes it, it makes it easier. But if those, if those depressing thoughts do arrive, that's exactly how you deal with it. That's what you do. What could you, do you know, do you know what, what sparks them if they happen? Cause I was just reading something about, you know, you're talking about why you've been in lockdown. You're saying that it's booked, brought you back to sort of like understanding your own childhood and you know your mum and dad worked in the airline business you were able to travel and all those things but it, it's also giving you a sense of where you are in in you in the world now yeah yeah totally I mean I I, I think that I, I I'm in a, a rare position of waking up every single morning and pinching myself that I get to do what I do for a living and so, you know, I'm, I'm so, so lucky. Uh, and I just want to do everything I can to make sure that I, I run that as long as, as long as I possibly can. And, and ever since I started in this job, I've kind of woken up saying to myself, tomorrow could be the last day. You know, all it takes is one single commissioner who doesn't like you. All it, all it takes is one dumb thing that you say on Twitter. All, all it takes mm. is, is, you know, one little change in life and this could all be gone. So make sure that you enjoy every single second of it and make sure you've always got a plan B. And that's, that's been my maxim since I got started. And, you know, thankfully I haven't woken up yet to find that I've, you know, completely undermined myself. Do, do you think that there, forget the social media thing for a bit, because that's just a, a minefield in every way, shape or form. Um, I think personally, but in terms of, you know, do you think, we know the power of commissioning editors. I've been working in, in the game for a long time. That's a concern that you'll have over your head. But do you think te television and, and the, the thing that you actually do, which is basically traveling to uncharted parts of the world, do you think that that may be in danger now because of COVID? And do you think that commissioners may be rethinking the way that they, they want to make television? 
it it's a hundred percent in danger. I, I think that you know we're all starting to question now whether it's acceptable to, for us to be thinking about going away on holiday to to Spain for a fortnight. Well, think about the 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 logistics and the challenges and the risks associated with taking a team of 15 people into the middle of West Africa into a country where you have no idea what their COVID situation is. You might see their their stats, but you can't believe them. They probably haven't got an ITU in the entire country. Your 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 uh, schedule for getting someone out if they get sick is what? Who knows? And then even if you can convince your team that it's an acceptable risk, you've got to convince the commissioners and the risk assessors and all those other people and the insurance company. And I, I can't see our job ever going back to the way it was. I, I, I think that, you know, it, to some degree, I know that, that uh, Bear and Guy Martin and a few others are already back filming in very, very, very specific parts of the world. But I, I think it's going to be a long time before uh, I, I'm back doing the kind of expeditions that I've been doing for the last 10, 15 years. Um, and that's another part of, you know, kind of thinking now, what is the future? How is the job going to have to change? How am I going to have to change for the next 20 or 30 years to make sure that I can, you know, still pay the mortgage and still keep doing this, this awesome job? Steve, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, you know, every one of your stories is incredible. You've lived an incredible life and um, you're going to just do more things, more incredible things. I know that. Um, I, I, I look forward to not seeing you uh, diving with uh, crocodiles or, um, or up some ridiculously high mountain or going down a, a ravine. I look forward to seeing you at Odds Farm with the rest of the kids uh, playing with the little tractors. Yeah. I, I cannot think of anything I would rather do. <laughs> Thank you again, my friend. You've been absolutely brilliant. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Kempcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Kemp and on Instagram at Ross Kemp TV. This has been a Freshwater and the Chance of Collective production. Thanks to the team and one fine play. And until the next episode, goodbye. 